The next day, Sergeant Colon did not turn up for work. Mrs. Colon sent a note around by a boy as soon as she got back from work herself. The Colons had survived a long and happy marriage by having as little to do with each other as possible. This was achieved by the expedient of him working the night shift when she was working days, and vice versa. They had agreed on this on the basis that anything else would have spoiled the romance. There was nothing romantic about Fred Colon when she got home, and so, after sweeping the floor, doing the washing up, wiping all the surfaces and spending some time teasing out the lumps of mud that had got caught in the doormat, she made haste to Pseudopolis Yard, after visiting her friend Mildred, who had a rather nice porcelain jug and basin set she wanted to sell. When she eventually got to the watch house, she explained that Fred was terribly poorly and sweating cobs and gabbling about rabbits. Sergeant Littlebottom was sent to investigate, and returned looking solemn as she climbed the steps to Vimes's office, now occupied by Captain Carrot. You could tell he was the occupant now, not simply because he was sitting in the chair, which was a persuasive hint, but also because all the paperwork was done and aligned, a trait which always impressed Inspector A. E. Pessimal, a small man who had the heart of a lion and the physical strength of a kitten, and the face, disposition, and general demeanour that would make even hardened accountants say, "'Just look at him. Doesn't he look like a typical accountant to you?' But this didn't worry the lion heart of A. E. Pessimal. He was the watch's secret weapon— there wasn't a bookkeeper in the city who would like to see a visit from A. E. Passamal, unless, of course, he was perfectly innocent, although generally that could be ruled out, because Mr. and Mrs. Passamal's little boy could track an error all the way through the ledger and down into the cellar where the real books had been hidden. And all Inspector A. E. Passamal wanted for his genius was a meticulously calculated wage and a chance, every now and again, to go out on the streets with a real policeman, swinging his truncheon and glaring at trolls. Carrot leaned back. So, how's Fred getting on, Cheery? Nothing much that I can see, really. Um, that was a big um, Cheery. The trouble was that Captain Carrot had a friendly, honest and open face that made you want to tell him things. It didn't help that Sergeant Littlebottom held a small torch for the captain, even though he was well and truly spoken for. He was also a dwarf, well, technically, and you can't help how you dream. Well, she began reluctantly. Carrot leaned forward. Yes, cheery? She gave in. Well, sir, it's ung you. You come from Copperhead. Did you run into many goblins up there? No, but I know that ung you is the religion, if you can call it that. Cheery Littlebottom shook her head, trying to get out of her mind some speculation about the part a reasonably high stool might play in a relationship, and telling herself that Sergeant Hammer of Gold, over in the Dolly's sister's watch-house, caught her eye every time she was busily catching his eye when they happened to meet on patrol, and was probably a really good catch if she could pluck up the courage to ask him if he was actually male. Strictly speaking, the sexuality of any given dwarf remained a secret between him, or, as it might be, her— and his, or, as it might be, her mother, until they decided to tell someone else about it, although generally you could work it out by observing dwarfs closely and spotting the ones that were drinking sherry or light white wine. Regrettably, this didn't always work with dwarf policemen, because, like all policemen everywhere, they would drink anything strong enough to help them forget what they'd had to deal with that day. She said, "'Ongue is not a religion, it's a superstition. The goblins don't believe in... Tack, sir. According to dwarf law, the universe was written into being by Tack, who also wrote its laws. All writing is sacred to the dwarfs. They're savages, scavengers, but—she hesitated again. 
There's something I was told once, and it's unbelievable, but sometimes they eat their babies, sir, or at least the mother will eat her child, her newborn child, if there's famine. Can you believe that? Carrot's mouth dropped open for a moment, and then a small voice said, Yes, I think I can, Sergeant, if you would excuse my saying so. A. E. Pessimal looked defiantly at their expressions and tried to stand a little straighter. It's a matter of logic, you see. No food, but the mother may survive by reconsuming the child, as it were, whereas if all other food has been exhausted, then the child will die. In fact, the child is dead as soon as the conundrum is postulated. The mother, on the other hand, might, by so doing, survive for long enough for more food to be found and become available, and in the course of time may bear another child. "'You know, that is a very accountancy thing to say,' said Cherry. A. E. Pessimal remained calm. "'Thank you, Sergeant Littlebottom. I shall take that as a compliment, because the logic is impeccable. It's what is known as the dreadful logic of necessity. I'm well versed in the logistics of survival situations.' The chair creaked as Captain Carrot leaned forward. "'No offence meant, Inspector Pessimal, but may I inquire as to what kind of issues of survival arise during double-entry bookkeeping?' A. E. Pessimal sighed. "'It can get pretty hazardous as the end of the fiscal year draws near, Captain. However, I take your point and would like you to understand that I believe I have read every single memoir, manual, log, and message in a bottle, by which I mean, of course, message taken from a bottle, that is currently available, and I can assure you that you would be amazed at the terrible decisions that sometimes have to be made by a group of people so that some, if not all, may live.' Classically, we have the shipwrecked sailors adrift in an open boat, far on the ocean with succour extremely unlikely. Generally, the procedure is to eat one another's legs, although sooner or later the supply of legs is going to run, if I may use the word, out. And then arises the question, who will die so that some may live? Dreadful algebra, Captain. Only then did A.E. Pessimal blush. I'm sorry, I know that I am a small, weak man, but I have amassed a large library. I dream of dangerous places. Perhaps you should walk through the shades, Inspector, said Carrot. You wouldn't have to dream. Do carry on, Cheery. Cheery Littlebottom shrugged. But eating your own child, that's got to be wrong, yes? Well, Sergeant, said A. E. Pessimal, I have read about such things, and if you think of the outcomes, which are the death of both mother and child, or the death of the child but the possible life of the mother, the conclusion must be that her decision is right. In his book, A Banquet of Worms, Colonel F. J. Massingham does mention this about the goblins, and apparently, according to the goblins' world view, a consumed child, which clearly did emerge from the mother, has been returned whence it came, and will hopefully be reborn anew at some future date, when circumstances are more favourable, with therefore no actual harm done. You may think that this view does not stand up to scrutiny, but when you're faced with a dreadful algebra, the world becomes quite a different place. There was silence while they all contemplated this. Carrot said, You know how it is in a street fight, Cheery. Sometimes if things get hot and you know it's you or them, that's when you do the algebra. Fred doesn't seem to know where he is, said Cheery. He wasn't running at temperature, and his bedroom isn't particularly warm. But he acts as if he's very hot, and he won't let go of that damned little pot. He shouts if anyone tries even to get near it. Actually, he screamed at me. 
And that's another thing. His voice has changed. He sounds like a man who's gargling rocks. I had a word with Ponder Stibbons at the university, but they don't appear to have anyone who knows anything much about goblins. Captain Carrot raised his eyebrows. Are you sure? I know for a fact they have a professor of dust, miscellaneous particles and filaments. And you tell me there's no expert on an entire species of talking humanoids? That's about right, sir. All we could turn up was stuff about what a bloody nuisance they are. You know the kind of thing. Nobody knows anything about goblins. I mean, stuff worth knowing. A.E. Pessimal actually saluted. Harry King does, Captain. There's quite a few of them at Downriver. They don't come into town much, though. You may remember that Lord Vetinari was gracious enough to ask for me to be seconded to the revenue in order that I might go through Mr. King's returns, given that all the other tax officers were frightened to set foot on his property. I myself, sir, was not frightened, said A.E. Pessimal proudly, because I am protected by my badge and the majesty of the law. Harry King might throw a tax man out of the building, but he's clever enough not to try that with one of Commander Vimes's men now indeed. You could have lit the city with the proud glow from A.E. Pessimal's face as he tried to puff out a chest that mostly went in. It became a little more swollen when Carrot said, "'Very well done, Inspector. You're a mean man with a smoking abacus indeed. I think I shall pay a visit to our old friend Harry first thing in the morning.' Vimes did some thinking about the problem of taking young Sam to a crime scene, but frankly the lad was showing himself to be up to just about any encounter. Besides, any lad wants to go and see where his dad works. He looked down at his son. Would you be scared of a long walk in the dark, lad, with me and these ladies? Young Sam looked solemn for a moment and then said, I think I'll let Mr. Whistle do the being scared, and then it won't bother me. The door to the secret tunnel, if indeed it was secret, was in Miss Beadle's cellar, which had quite a well-appointed wine rack and a general not unpleasant smell of, well, a cellar but once through the door there was a smell of distant goblins. It was a long walk in the dark, especially when you were obliged to walk up quite a steep slope very nearly on hands and knees. The smell of goblins grew stronger after a while, but during that while you tended to get used to it. Here and there light shone into the gloom from holes to the outside world, which Vimes thought was sensible engineering, until he realised that rabbits used this tunnel too, and had left plenty of droppings as evidence. He wondered whether he should pocket a few samples for young Sam's collection, and suggested this to young Sam, toiling manfully behind him, who said, "'No, Dad, got rabbits. Want elephant if we find one?' Rabbit poo, Vimes noticed, was about the size of a chocolate raisin, a thought which instantly dragged him back to his youth, when if by some means never entirely legal he had acquired some cash, he would spend it on a ticket to the Flea Pit musical and buy a packet of chocolate raisins with the change.' Nobody knew, or cared to guess, what the things were that scuttled and scratched down below the seats, but you soon learned a very important rule. If you dropped your chocolate raisins, it was vitally important not to pick them up. Vimes stopped, causing Miss Beadle to walk into the sack of apples that she had asked him to carry, and got a grip on himself sufficiently to say, "'I'd like a moment or two to catch my breath, Miss Beadle. Sorry, not as young as I was and all that. I'll catch you up. What are we carrying these bags for, anyway?' Fruit and vegetables, Commander. What? To goblins? I'd have thought they found their own food. Miss Beadle inched her way around him and climbed on into the dark, saying over her shoulder, Yes, they do. Vimes sat with young Sam for a moment until he felt better, and said, How are you doing, lad? In the dark a small voice said, I told Mr. Whistle not to worry, Dad, because he's a bit silly. 
So is your father, thought Vimes, and is probably going to continue to be so. But he was on the chase. One way or another, he was on the chase. Who you were chasing could wait. The chasing was the thing. Anger helped Vimes up the last leg of the climb, angered himself and whoever it was who had punctured his holiday. But it was worrying. He had wanted something to happen, and now it had. Somebody was dead. Sometimes you had to take a look at yourself and then look away. He found Miss Beadle and Tears of the Mushroom waiting with a dozen or so other... ladies. It was a calculated guess, given that he had yet to find any reliable way of telling one goblin from another, except, of course, that Tears of the Mushroom was wearing her apron with pockets in, which he hadn't seen before, and apparently neither had the other ladies, since Tears of the Mushroom was now the hit of the season as far as her sisters were concerned, given that they currently wore daring little outfits of old sacking, plaited grasses and rabbit skin. They gathered around her, chorusing, presumably, the goblin equivalent of, Oh, my dear, you look fabulous. However, that might be rendered in a language that at its best sounded like a man jumping up and down on a very large packet of crisps. Miss Beadle sidled up to Vimes and said, I know what you're thinking, but it's a start. Carrying things, useful things, without having to use your hands, well, that's a step in the right direction. She pulled Vimes a little way from the newly formed goblin branch of the Women's Institute, who had by now attracted the attention of young Sam, whose cheerful reluctance to be overawed by anything had clearly won over the girls, resulting with his being where he always felt he should be, the centre of attention. It was a knack. Miss Beadle went on. If you want to change a whole people, then you start with the girls. It stands to reason. They learn faster, and they pass on what they learn to their children. I suppose you're wondering why we are trekking up here with all these sacks. Behind them, the apron was being tried on by one girl after another, this year's must-have item. Vimes turned back to the woman and said, Well, this is just a guess, but I see a lot of rabbit bones around the place, and I have heard that you can die if you live only on rabbit, only I don't know why this is. Miss Beadle lit up. Well, Commander Vimes, you've certainly gone up in my estimation. Yes, rabbits have been the scourge of the goblin nation. I understand it depletes the body of some vital nutrient if you don't eat other things as well. Just about any green stuff will do, but the male goblins think a proper meal was a rabbit on a stick. She sighed. Dwarfs know about this, and they're absolutely fanatical about good food, as you should be if you spend much of your time underground, but nobody cared to tell the goblins, as if they would listen anyway, and so bad health and premature death is their lot. Some survive, of course, mostly those who prefer rat or eat the whole rabbit, not just the more apparently edible bits, or they simply eat their vegetables. She began to unfasten a sack of cabbages and continued, I was well in with the wife of the head man here, because he got sick and I made certain he got a few good meals. Of course, he swears it was because he did the magic, but his wife was remarkably sensible, and the other males don't worry about what the girls get up to, so they slip fruit and veg into their stews, saying they're magical and so they have children who survive, and thus we change the world one meal at a time. That is, if the goblins get a chance to live at all. She looked sadly at the gossiping girls and said, What they really need is a first-class theologian, because, you see, they agree with the rest of the world. They think they're rubbish. They think they did something very bad a long time ago, and because of it they've lived like they do. They think they have it coming to them, as you might say. Vimes frowned. He couldn't remember ever going into a church or temple or one of the numerous other places of more or less spirituality for any other reason than the occasional requirements of the job. 
These days he tended to go in for reasons of Sybil, i.e. his wife dragging him along so that he could be seen, and, if possible, be seen remaining awake. No, the world of next worlds, afterlives, and purgatorial destinations simply did not fit into his head. Whether you wanted it or not, you were born, you did the best you could, and then, whether you really wanted to or not, you died. They were the only certainties, and so the best thing for a copper to do was to get on with the job. And it was about time that Sam Vimes got back to doing his. Young Sam, at this point, had tired of Petticoat Company, and had drifted over to an elderly goblin man who was working on a pot, and was watching with extreme fascination to the apparent pleasure, as far as Vimes could tell, of the elderly goblin. That's a lesson to us. I don't know what kind of lesson, but it's a lesson, he thought. Vimes waited until his beadle returned from discussing the possible new fashion explosion with the girls, and then politely asked her, Did the victim have any ungue pots on her? I would be amazed if she hadn't, said Miss Beadle, one or two at the very least, but probably the quite small ones for use during the day. I see, said Vimes. But were any found on her... Uh, afterwards, I mean, if she was laid out. He didn't know what the protocol was, and continued, Look, Miss Beadle, is it possible that she had an ungue pot on her that's now missing? I know they're valuable, of course, they're shiny. I don't know, but I'll go and ask the cold bone wakes. He's the head goblin, he'll know. That reminded Vimes. Feeling embarrassed, he delved into his pocket and took out a small package, very, very carefully wrapped, and handed it to Miss Beadle with a pleading look. I believe this belonged to the dead girl, he said, a stone ring with a little blue bead in it. Can you see that it gets to someone here who will value it? All she had was a stone ring, he thought, and even that got taken away. There were times when the world did not need policemen, because what it really did need was for somebody who knew what they were doing to shut it all down and start it all up again, so that this time it could be done properly. But before despair could entirely set in, Miss Beadle was back and excited. How apposite that you should ask that question, Commander. One of them was missing. Ungu cat. Vimes could register absolute flat-faced incomprehension as well as any copper born. It radiated a searchlight of ignorance, but that was fine because Miss Beadle was prepared to be a fountainhead of information. I'm sure you know what everybody knows, Commander, which is that goblins do, I might say religiously, store certain bodily secretions in pots, in the belief that these must be reunited with their corpse when they are buried. This obligation is called ungue. All goblins must, by custom, which is very strict among goblins, maintain the ungue had, the trinity of snot, nail, clippings, and earwax. The missing pot in this case is the pot of cat, which contains nail clippings. Don't get misled by the word cat. Felines don't come into the picture. It's simply that there are only so many syllables in the world. And... This is the first time you've heard that it's missing, Miss Beadle? Well, this is my first time down here since yesterday, and it's a difficult time to talk to her family, as you may imagine. I see, said Vimes, though he didn't, not very much, although he could sense a tiny bead of light growing in the darkness of his mind. He glanced again at young Sam, who was studying the potmaker with every sign of forensic interest. That's my boy, he continued. Did they look for the pot? Looked everywhere, Commander, even outside, and it'll be quite small. You see, every goblin makes a set of pots which are kept deep inside the cave. I don't know where they are, though in most other things they trust me. This is because humans steal pots. 
For this reason, most goblins make other comparatively small pots for daily use and for when they leave the cave, and decant them into the larger pots later in secret. She tried to smile and said, I'm sure this seems quite outlandish to you, Commander, but the making and maintaining of the pots is to them a religion in itself. At this point, Samuel Vimes was not keen to be heard giving his views about pots, so he contented himself with saying, Is it possible that another goblin might have stolen the pot? Anyway, what size is quite small? Miss Beadle gave him a surprised look. If you trust me on anything, Commander, trust me on this. No goblin would dream of stealing another goblin's pot. The concept of doing so would be totally alien to them, I assure you. The size? Oh, usually similar to a lady's compact or perhaps a snuff-box. They have a shine on them like opals. Yes, said Vimes, I know. And he thought, bright colours in the dark. He said, I don't want to be difficult, but could I borrow another of the poor lady's pots? I might need one to show people what it is I'm looking for. Miss Beadle looked surprised again. That would be impossible. But I think if I talk to Tears the Mushroom, she might, just might, loan you one of hers, in which case I may say you will be a very special person, Commander. A pot usually changes hands only because of distress, but Tears the Mushroom spends a lot of time with me and has learned, shall I say, the uses of flexible thinking, and, if I may say so, she has taken a little bit of a shine to you. She walked away, leaving the startled Vimes and young Sam to their own devices. Here and there, goblins were doing whatever they did, tending small fires, sleeping, or, in many cases, fussing with their pots. And a few just sat there staring blankly at nothing at all, like a policeman wondering how you spelled phantasmagorical. And a new image dragged itself out of Vimes's memory. It was of a lot of little blue men shouting crivens. Ah, yes, the Knack Macfeagal. They lived in holes in the ground as well. Admittedly, these were said to be rather more salubrious than this midden-ridden cave system, but however you looked at it, they were in the same situation as the goblins. They lived on the edge too, but they, they danced on the edge. They jumped up and down on it, made faces at it, thumbed their snotty noses at it, refused to see the peril of their situation, and, in general, seemed to have a huge appetite for life, adventure, and alcohol. As a copper, he shouldn't say it, because they could be a bloody nuisance, but there was something commendable about the cheerfully feisty way they faced, well, everything. Somebody tugged at his sleeve. He looked down into the face of Tears of the Mushroom, with Miss Beadle standing over her like a chaperone. The other goblin girls stood behind the pair of them like an Ephibian chorus. The solemn voice from the little face said, "'Hearts must give, Mr. Policeman.' With dreadfully bad timing, Miss Beadle broke in like an overactive schoolteacher, and Vimes was privately overjoyed to see a brief look of annoyance on Tears the Mushroom's face. She means that if she is to trust you with a pot, then you must trust her with something equally valuable. I suppose you would call it a hostage situation. No, I wouldn't, Vimes thought, looking into the dark eyes of the goblin girl. That was a strange thing. When he got past the features, which at best could be considered homely, depending on what kind of home you had in mind, the eyes were as human as you could imagine. They had a depth that not even the brightest animal could achieve. He reached for his wallet, and Miss Beadle said sharply, Money won't do. He ignored her and finished pulling out the picture of young Sam that he took everywhere and carefully passed it to Tears of the Mushroom, who accepted it as if holding a rare and delicate object, which, from the point of view of Vimes, it certainly was. She looked at it, 
then down at the boy himself, who gave her a cheery smile, and her eyes confirmed that the grimace on her face was in fact an answering smile. For young Sam, the goblin cave was an interesting fairyland. You had to admire his ability not to be immediately frightened of anything. Tears of the mushroom looked back at the picture, and then back at young Sam, and then at the face of Vimes. She tucked the picture carefully into her apron, and pulled out a small iridescent pot. She held it out to Vimes, her hand trembling slightly, and he found himself taking it gingerly in both hands. Then Tears of the Mushroom said in her strange voice, like a living filing cabinet, "'Hearts have given,' which almost brought Vimes to his knees. He thought, it could just as well have been her head grinning on the pub wall. Someone is going to burn. In the back of his mind, a cheerful voice said, Well done, Commander Vimes. At last you are singing from my hymn sheet. He ignored it, feeling the little pot. It was as smooth as skin. Whatever it was made to contain, and he wasn't going to ask, the contents were masked by a carved latticework of flowers and mushrooms.